You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out what's the right amount of information to give patients to get them to come in for screening. Our first hypothesis was that actually uh, inviting people using our informed choice invitation would lower attendance. Also, we'll be looking at how antiretroviral treatment affects transmission between couples. Now, time after time again, we find that the rate of transmission is very much reduced. But unfortunately, it is still difficult to put an exact figure on it. But before all that, I'm joined by Annabelle Fairman, who's here with this week's news. Hi, Annabelle. Hi, Duncan. Well, the big news this week obviously has been the election. We carried um, one news story arising out of the election, which was the defeat of um, Evan Harris, who was a Liberal Democrat MP for Oxford West and Abingdon. And he is a doctor and he has fought for science and evidence-based policy and such like. And so uh, his defeat by 176 votes caused quite a stir among the science and uh, medical community. Yes, absolutely. Yes. um, It was said to be a sad day for science and government. Colin Blakemore, professor of neuroscience at Oxford and and a former head of the MRC, Mm -hmm. said um, that the defeat of Evan Harris is a sad loss for Parliament and for British science. My strongest impression of Evan is the way that he always acted out of principle rather than narrow political or personal interest. He has been a tireless champion for science, for social justice and for human rights. And he had various other people speak up for him, Ben Goldacre and various people. One of the reasons he got defeated was that some of his opponents um, put around a lot of anti-vivisection leaflets, which you know made out that he was very much in favour of uh, vivisection. I mean, he's he has spoken up in favour of research and such like, but I mean, I don't think he's um, exactly campaigned for animals to be used in research. <laughs> no, and um, he was also. Um campaign for euthanasia. That's right, for assisted suicide. And so that was why he was labelled by some people as Dr. Death. I think actually most of our readers might feel that he's or was a breath of fresh air in, mm. in the House of Commons because, you know, science is not terribly well represented in the House of Commons. So anyway, he's going to fight to be re-elected. Uh, That's good. And we don't know when the next election will be, but it might be sooner than the five-year parliament that um, this government is hoping for. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, So we've got more election news then. We've got more election news because then Nick Timmins, who's the public policy editor of the Financial Times, did write a a very good piece for us saying what were the differences and uh, similarities between um, the policies of the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. In other words, you know, what were they going to find it easy to put into practice and what what were they going to find it hard? Yes. And he said there's quite a lot of similarities. Um, For example, that both of them are quite happy with the idea of any willing provider. They, they didn't feel strongly whether the person had to be, the provider had to be from the private sector or the public sector. They were sort of both neutral on that. But one big area where they don't agree is that the Conservatives want to set up a board to take the NHS in a way out of party politics. And mm-hmm. um, this board would be um, basically commission care in the NHS. Well, that is quite a radical proposal. And... Um, during the campaign, the, the Lib Dems had spoken out quite strongly against it. Mm-hmm. Norman Lamb, who is the Lib Dem spokesman on health, described an independent board as crazy and a nonsense. And he declared that to have an independent, non-elected quango responsible for £100 billion of public money is simply incredible. 
uh, decisions will have to be made on closing hospitals and restructuring services. And if those decisions are made by, quotes, an unelected quango, it will become the child support agency of the NHS. Um, so not very popular. Not very like. popular, exactly. <laughs> so they've started talking about what they're going to do yes. with their coalition. Has this been borne out? Well, we're going to have... Um, no, that's not at the top of the agenda. One of the things that uh, the Daily Mail has carried today is something saying that the new government will want to renegotiate the uh, GP's contract so that they take back responsibility for out-of-hours care. But um, I think they're going to come into quite a lot of um, opposition yes. uh, from GPs and the BMA on that. So um, basically, health has not been one of the main contentious issues between the two parties, unlike, mm. say, Europe and so forth. Yes. So, but, and so I suspect they might be rather slow to, to try and introduce this board because, um, I don't know, why not start with the things that they all agree on first before they you know, move, to, <laughs> <laughs> move, to, move to these more difficult areas? Yes. Well, Anvil, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you. So I'm joined now by Teresa Marteau. She's a professor of health psychology at King's College London. She and her colleagues have published a paper online this week on bmj.com, which is looking to evaluate whether receipt of an informed choice invitation to attend for screening compared with a standard invitation reduces attendance, particularly amongst the most socially deprived and thereby increasing health inequalities. Now, Teresa, you were looking at um, diabetes screening here. Yes. And could you just explain to the listeners what's the difference between an informed choice invitation and a standard one? Yes. Well, in this um, trial, what, what we set out to do was to compare um, the standard invitation, which um, is the one that is commonly used to invite people for certainly cardiovascular screening, which is a brief invitation which simply states why an individual has been offered screenings Mm -hmm. and a brief description of um, the nature of the condition, the seriousness of diabetes and the fact that there are many people for whom it hasn't been diagnosed. So that was our standard brief invitation. And the the informed choice invitation that uh, we, we developed went further and attempted to quantify the limited potential individual benefit of coming for screening and um, for those found to have diabetes early treatment and also spelt out some of the harms of screening. And then finally, the invitation went on to encourage people to make a choice and reflect on what they'd been given and to make a list of why coming for screening might be good for them and why coming for screening might be bad for them. Okay. Now, why did you decide to look at this? Is there evidence that more dense information might put some people off? Well, we decided to look at it because health policies in the UK and indeed elsewhere now um, hold with the idea that to participate in screening programmes um, this should reflect an informed choice, that people should be given information about the potential benefit for them as well as the potential harms. And our concern was that this might have unintended consequences and we weren't convinced that the evidence was there to, to evaluate this. OK, so you produced these two leaflets to compare them. What did you expect to find out? Well, we were testing three hypotheses. Um, Our first hypothesis was that actually uh, inviting people using our our informed choice invitation would lower attendance. Mm -hmm. 
Our second hypothesis was that this effect would be most marked in those who were socially deprived. We know from work in and outside of health that the more socially deprived people are, the more they value the present as against the future. Mm. And so by telling people um, that actually the benefits for screening are not only limited, but those happen in the future, and what you get in the present is the potential for harm, could put off those who are valuing the present more highly than the future, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, But we did think that there there, there could be some uh, advantages of um, uh, inviting people to make an informed choice about screening. So what we hypothesized was that those who had attended following the informed choice invitation, that they would have engaged much more in um, thinking through what the consequences would be of coming for screening and in particular learning that they might be at increased risk or indeed have a diagnosis of diabetes. And that would uh, result in them having a stronger uh, intention to change their behaviour were they um, found to have diabetes. Right, I see, yes. And so you studied this. Um, Mm -hmm. Were your hypotheses borne out? Um, uh, We found no evidence for any of our hypotheses. Mm. So there were there were 1,500 people who were randomised either to get the informed choice or the standard invitation. And when we looked at the proportion who attended, we found that overall 57% of those attended. And it was no difference between those getting the two different invitations. So it was actually 56% in those getting the informed choice invitation and 58% in those getting the standard invitation. Uh, We also found that it didn't matter how socially deprived you were, the invitations had the same effect. But in fact, the key, I would say that one of the key findings, uh, which replicates what others have shown, but shows very forcibly, is that the likelihood of somebody attending for screening was very much predicted by their level of social deprivation. So those who were least deprived, um, 64% attended for screening, Mm -hmm. whereas in those who were most deprived, 47% attended. So we got this marked gap um, in attendance rate between the most and least deprived. Okay. So do you think that means that instead of a push to try and make sure that people are given lots of information so they can make an informed choice, that actually to target the population that isn't coming in for screening anyway, um, the, the, the focus should be slightly different, more just getting them through the doors as opposed to, to making sure that they understand exactly what the testing's about? Yes, um, I think that we wouldn't say as a result of this that people don't need information. I mean, people do need information about screening, indeed all medical interventions. But what we were able to show in in a previous study in developing the invitations was that those who got the um, informed choice invitation did have a higher level of knowledge Mm -hmm. about screening. Um, But it didn't affect attitudes towards screening. So regardless of the invitation that people got in our development study, their attitudes towards screening were very positive and their intentions to attend were very strong. And that was the same regardless of level of social deprivation. So what we're seeing here is that the invitations 
um, and not affecting people's attitudes to, to attend for screening. So providing more information um, is not going to um, result in uh, more of those who are socially deprived mm. attending. Um, so we need to find a better way of trying to engage those who have most to gain from screening because they're most at risk for this disease. So following on from that interview with Teresa, I'm now joined by Cathy Moulton, who's a care advisor at Diabetes UK. And Diabetes UK is a charity that provides information to patients uh, about diabetes. Now, Cathy, when you're creating some sort of patient information leaflet for Diabetes UK, what do you keep in mind about what to tell a patient? Information leaflets are always um, a real tricky one because you can't overload people with information, um, but you, we all know the real need to get the core messages out. Mm. Um, one of the things that we started doing was what we called the Measure Up campaign, um, showing people a very simple um, way of measuring their waste at home to find out if their risk of developing type 2 diabetes was increased. Mm -hmm. Developing on from that, what we found also is that um, we can hand out leaflets until um, the cows come home. We can send them to um, surgeries and clinics where um, they get lost amongst lots of other um, leaflets. And what we've done is taken out what we affectionately called our roadshow um, into towns, villages, cities throughout the country, throughout the nation. Um, and we've actually opportunistically invited people to um, come and have a risk assessment done of their risk for developing type 2. Mm -hmm. And the uptake of that has been absolutely tremendous. Um, we back this up with more information um, so that people haven't got to try and take it all in in one go. And it's really important that the information is very much in bite-sized chunks. So backing up that information is the opportunity to call our care line uh, to talk to a counsellor. All of these things have been proved really, really important. Okay, so it's a kind of a personal approach. So one-on-one -on -one conversation with people seems to work best. Very much so. Now, the GMC guidance recommends that in an invitation, enough information is put in there that will allow patients to make an informed choice. But do you think that's the right approach, or do you think information would be better provided by a doctor or a nurse or an expert like the, the people that you have on your lines? I think it's a combination of the two. You can't rely on either one um, because you can put your all into a one-to-one -one conversation and the person's only heard um, a very small part of it, and you might have used a word that has struck fear into them, so they stop listening, or you might have inadvertently used a word that they don't understand. Mm. They're only getting um, the odd 10-minute appointment um, with the best will in the world. There's a limit to what you can do in those 10 minutes if you're the healthcare professional. Sure. So you need to be able to find out from the literature that they, they're using where the gaps in their knowledge are, where you can uh, broaden their understanding and actually help them to live with the condition much more um, effectively. Mm -hmm. Now you've done your, your screening drives and you talk to a lot of patients at Diabetes UK. If a PCT is encouraging a GP practice to get the high-risk patients in for screening, do you have any guidance, uh, any ideas that, about what a GP should do? Well, as I said at the beginning, um, 
we, we've developed a risk score, which we're hoping to package into a, like a toolkit or a resource that uh, GPs would be able to use. Um, it it mo has moved away from the finger prick testing because we were finding when we were um, testing people by their finger prick for their risk of developing type 2, um, we were getting highs that maybe were there just because somebody had not long eaten mm. or we were getting what we would term as normal levels but looking at the person they were grossly overweight and admitting to very little exercise so it, in our eyes they were quite high risk but we weren't going to send them on following the criteria so fingerprint testing was not the ideal and what we've developed is a simple um, a screening test of questions following the risk factors of developing type 2 diabetes. Now if the GP has this system, their practice nurse or um, even one of their, um, their reception staff could actually run through this risk assessment with somebody if they needed help. Pharmacists could do it and then the GP could actually just be seeing the people who are coming out at high risk. Great. Well Cathy, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm joined by Dr. Anne Bouvet, who's an epidemiologist in the Department of Microbiology in the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp, Belgium. Now, Anne, the research that we're publishing online um, from the Spanish group was is looking at uh, heterosexual transmission of HIV in serio-discordant couples, and they found that when the HIV-positive partner was on antiretroviral therapy and the viral load was very low, that um, that transmission didn't happen. Now, have other studies beforehand replicated that? You know, is there is there some background here? Uh, yes, there have been other studies who have looked at this question and actually. A systematic review and meta-analysis was published in 2009. The first author was Susanna Atia. Now, time after time again, we find that the rate of transmission is very much reduced. But unfortunately, it is still difficult to put an exact figure on it. Because usually we deal with large cohorts, but seroconversions are not that uh, frequent. And on top of that, if you want to compare between people taking ART and people not taking ART, you end up with very few seroconversions and very few opportunities to um, get an exact estimate. Uh, in fact, this same group has previously published, and that was uh, used to make the so-called Swiss statement. Could you just tell us what this statement said? Well, the title reads, HIV-positive individuals without additional sexually transmitted diseases and on effective antiretroviral therapy are sexually non-infectious. This was quite a bold statement, as you can imagine. Mm. And they put forward three criteria that the HIV-infected partner is on antiretroviral treatment and has an undetectable viral load for at least six months. And then secondly, the infected HIV-infected partner should 
not have an additional sexually transmitted disease. Uh, this statement uh, was not followed by many people, including the authors of this article, who are more cautious. Mm. Because we know now, or there is evidence that indeed the risk of onward transmission is very much reduced, but it is not zero. Some people have said that if only we had universal access to testing and treatment, then HIV AIDS could be significantly reduced, specifically because transmission would be much reduced. Do you think that's a realistic hope? In November 2008, The Lancet published the results of a mathematical model, and that model suggested that in a population with an epidemic like the one in South Africa, one would do yearly testing of everybody in the population and put the HIV-infected people immediately under treatment, the epidemic would peter out and after 50 years prevalence would be less than 1%. Mm. Uh, that is realistic, but there are a number of conditions that you have a high coverage, meaning that 100% of people who need to go on antiretroviral treatment are put on antiretroviral treatment. Mm-hmm. In developing countries, that is still far from the case, as you can imagine. Yes. Second condition is that people on antiretroviral treatment are adherent to their treatment. We are talking about a lifelong treatment. It's not evident uh, for people to take those antiretroviral drugs twice a day for many years on end without being fed up at one point Mm. or another uh, with those drugs. And then thirdly, there should not be a disinhibition of sexual behavior. Mm. And that's unfortunately what we have seen in quite a few industrialized countries that among gay men, we've seen an increase in other sexually transmitted infections and HIV, for instance, in Holland, despite a high coverage with antiretroviral treatment. Okay. Well, Dr. Bouvet, thank you very much for joining us today. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.